During our um, summer holidays, we were heading down to, um, I think it was Wales, to do some camping. And it was a long drive. And one of the ways that we kind of occupy time on the drive is the kids, our two children, Levi and Asher, they're eight and six, they get to choose the music in the car on the way down. And we got a kind of selection of CDs. And Asher, our youngest, was insistent that we play um, one of our worship albums, but it was the Christmas one, hence the song you've just been listening to. And he, was, he would not be dissuaded. So we were heading down to Wales in the glorious sunshine, and we had Christmas carols going. We had Hark the Herald Angels Sing and Ding Dong Merry on High, Oh Come All Ye Faithful, We Wish You a Merry Christmas. And they were blaring out, and it was still about 140 days to Christmas. You know, it's 107 today, by the way, in case you're interested, we're getting there. But his favorite was that one we've just heard, Joy to the World, that begins, Joy, Joy, Joy. And he sings it at the top of his lungs. It's like living with a Von Trapp child. It just, it just burst into song. And as we were heading down to um, Wales, that's what we had coming through the car. We had, and we had to listen to the whole CD, several of the songs twice. Um, but he, he loves that kind of thing. So joy, joy, joy was the kind of the theme of our holidays. And then we came... Um, Looking at what we're going to be studying now, we're starting a new series on the book of Philippians. And if you read the book of Philippians, the theme of joy runs all the way through it. It comes up again and again. You do a search for the word joy or the word rejoice, you find it come over and over. So we're starting this new series, and in honor of my youngest son, we've called it Joy, Joy, Joy. And there are many ways in which we can find joy. If you go out into the world, you go out into culture, and the like, they'll tell you there's lots of different ways you can find your joy. You can find your joy in different purposes. You can be, you can put in a, a regime in your life, the next diet plan, the next kind of get healthy scheme. You can follow a political cause or a charitable organization. And if you put purpose and meaning in your life, that will bring you joy. If you go on to Amazon and you go to the book section and you type in things like happiness and joy, oodles, thousands of books come up, 10 steps to joy. These are just things you can do, put in place. If you do this, you will be happy, you will be fulfilled. Your life will be full of joy. So many different purposes. The second thing the world tells you you can get to find joy is possessions. Advertising exists for this purpose. If you get this... If you pursue this, it will bring you joy, it will bring you happiness, it will bring you fulfillments, the new house, the new car, the new clothes, the new bit of technology, the new trinket, the new toy, whatever it is, the latest, you get that. Your current one is obsolete and no good and will not bring you joy, so you need this new one. You need this one that's bigger, better, brighter, shinier and interestingly more expensive as well. And they want you to get more and more possessions. If you do this, you will be happy. The next thing the world offers you is places. If you go to this place, if you go to this new bar, this new restaurant, this concert, this film, whatever it is, if you travel and you visit this place and experience this thing and go to this hotel, uh, this beach, this place before you die, then you will have joy, you will have happiness. And the final thing it offers you is new people. 
if you meet with these people, if you hang out with people who are cool and interesting and savvy, you go on dating websites, you find your partner, whatever it is, if you meet these new people, you will find fulfillment. And what we find ourselves in now today in 21st century Western culture, we are the most entertained, informed, amused with the most possessions and the most stuff that ever existed in the history of the world. We have the most access to travel and technology and anything we could want, we can get, we can buy, we can get it imported from other countries. We can do pretty much anything now that if you went back even 50, 60 years, people wouldn't believe you if you told them what it was like now. Yet, at the same time, we find that actually our culture hasn't found lasting joy. There's always the next thing. There's always something you find a purpose, it's not working, or you get a new purpose. You buy that new possession, that new house, that new car, and suddenly it feels a bit old and faded after a little bit of a while. You need to replace it, you need to upgrade it, it needs to get better. The people you meet, you know, you get to know them, find out they're just as annoying as you are. You know, and suddenly actually you don't get joy so much in people you can do, but actually they've got as many problems as you are, and they can wind you up. Some of the places you go, they look shiny and new on the advertising, but then you go there, and you're like, eh, it's all right. Or you get bored after it after a while, no matter how good it is. I read some articles online from newspapers. I found this one in The Independent. It said since 2010, teenage suicide is up by 67% in the UK. One on the Express says that the use of antidepressants in our culture has doubled in the last decade. Now, I'm not saying that antidepressants have their uses for people, chemical imbalances, but actually it's pointing to a bigger problem that we have in our culture. We are not as happy or as filled with joy as we think we are. And if we look around with open eyes, we, we see reality and find out actually it's hard. Life can be very difficult. Life can be very painful. It's full of injustice and it's full of wrongs and it's full of death and pain. We're not all going to be millionaires and live healthy, perfect lives. You're welcome, by the way. <laughs> That's just not the way it is. And if you're a follower of Jesus, it's going to be even worse. Jesus says, <laughs> so glad I came today. <laughs> you called it joy. <laughs> Jesus said that you're going to have trouble in this world. That's what he actually said. Thanks, Lord. You're going to have trouble in this world. We follow a man who was God, but he was rejected, he was maligned, he was beaten, he suffered injustice, and ultimately they murdered him. And if you follow someone like that, if they did it to him, guess what? They're going to do it to you too. They're going to do it to you, you, you too. But the good news is that Jesus has answers for us. There are ways we can find lasting joy in this life. And the book of Philippians opens this up to us. So that's the theme of our series. We're going to cover Philippians over about the next 11 or so weeks to get through it all. And we're going to look at the theme of joy that runs all the way through and how we find joy in life circumstances. If you've never read the book of Philippians, I encourage you to do so. It's a short letter. It's only four chapters in your Bible. Read it. Get it out. You can read it in one sitting very easily. If you've never done that, get into 
the book of Philippians. If you've not watched the Bible Project video on the book of Philippians, which I sent out the mail out, just watch it. It's a few minutes long, and it will help give you an overview of the book to help you understand it. If you've never checked out the videos from the Bible Project, go on YouTube. They're brilliant. They're fantastic. They give you an overview of every single book in the Bible, plus a whole bunch of other stuff. Levi, our eldest, has been watching these in his staying up time. I think he's covered near the entire New Testament now and just watch them and he knows and he starts quoting back to me what happens in certain books of the Bible. They're a brilliant resource for us and your kids. And what we're going to look at today is the first part of our series. We're going to look at the key to joy. What is our key to joy as followers of Jesus in this world? I want to look at first the sort of setting of the letter, give a little bit of background information and then I want to look at the who, where, um, the what, who, where, and how of joy. All right, first thing, the setting. So if you've got your Bible, can you open the book of Philippians in the New Testament? Talk a little bit about this. Now, this was a letter written by a man named Paul and a man named Timothy. If you look at the very first verses, their names come up. Who were these people? Paul. He was an apostle of Jesus. He was one of the sent ones of Jesus, and he wrote much of our New Testament. If you flick through that part of the Bible, all those sort of smaller letters about he wrote most of them. He was formerly an enemy of God's people, an enemy of the church. He hated Christians. In fact, he was complicit in the murder of one of them, a man named Stephen in Acts chapter 7. After that, he was, he was an agent of persecution from the church. He had Christians dragged out of their homes and thrown in jail. He was not what you would call a friend of God's people. But in Acts chapter 9, we see a dramatic conversion where he meets the risen Jesus. He changed his name. He was called Saul. He then changed his name to Paul. And he becomes a follower of Jesus. And he's actually commissioned to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He was a Jew, but God says, actually, I want you to go to the non-Jews and tell them about me. He went from murderer to missionary after an encounter with Jesus. And he started the church in the city of Philippi to which this letter is written. He's important. Timothy, the other chap there, he was um, a younger man and he had a Jewish mother and a Greek father. So he, he straddled the cultures of the time. He traveled with Paul. He was one of his traveling companions, went through all the stories we read about Paul. Often Timothy is there with him, experiencing him. He was described as Paul's son in the faith. And he was possibly Paul's secretary. He might have been the one who actually wrote the letter, physically wrote it, while Paul was the one dictating what is said as kind of the older sort of a teacher of the pair. And he's actually known to the um, recipients of the letter, because if we get to chapter 2, we'll find him mentioned. So that the church knew him. And this letter is a letter of friendship. It's a letter that's warm towards its recipients. Uh, the church at the time was facing um, some kind of opposition. We don't actually know what. The scholars can't don't know, there's not enough information, so there's been some guesses, but there was something opposition in the church, they were coming up against some persecution, and it's also a letter that is to encourage them in their faith to keep going, so there's lots of great stuff for us to learn. Now, the city of Philippi, to which the letter was written, that was a key city in the area where it was, a place called Macedonia at the time, which is kind of northern Greece as we know it now, and it took its name from a man named Philip of Macedon, who was the dad of Alexander the Great. You've probably heard of Alexander the Great, quite impressive historical figure. Well, his dad started the city, um, and then many years later, there was a decisive battle there between Julius Caesar got murdered, two of his heirs, Octavian, who became the Emperor Augustus, and Mark Antony, 
may have heard of him from Cleopatra fame. They fought those who were responsible for the death of Caesar, which is Brutus and Cassius. And there was a big battle, the Battle of Philippi, in which they were victorious. And as a result of that, many of the troops who had fought in the battle on Octavian and Mark Antony's side were settled in Philippi. So it had a military history. Veterans were there. And as a result of that, the city of Philippi was bestowed a great honor. And that it was basically um, designated a colony of Rome, which meant it was like a mini Rome a long way from Rome. So all the citizens there were Roman citizens. They had all the rights of, in response to taxes and land, etc., as if they were a Roman citizen. Um, and which means they were free from um, execution and scourging and things like that. And they could ultimately appeal to Caesar as well as a Roman citizen. We see Paul doing that later in his life. He can do that. So it was a place that was very much part of Rome and the Roman Empire there. Even their coins had Latin inscriptions on it, not Greek inscriptions, because it was very much we're part of Rome. And a church was founded there. If you want to read about it, go to Acts chapter 16. It's a crazy chapter of things going on. God calls Paul across the seas, like in Turkey. He says, you've got to come over here, help us. And he arrives in Philippi. Um, We have a lady called Lydia who becomes a Christian there. Paul goes out, meets some of the Jews. She gets saved, and she was a wealthy woman, gives them a place to stay, a place to kind of start the church. And we have the crazy story of the demon-oppressed um, girl who was being used as a fortune teller. And she follows Paul and the companions around, kind of keeps yelling at them. Eventually, Paul just says, demon, come out of her in the name of Jesus. She is miraculously healed, praise God. Her bosses, who use her as a fortune teller, knocked so they basically get Paul and his one of his companions, Silas, chucked in jail, kind of without trial. They go into jail, then they have the, the story of the earthquake, where all the jail doors fly open. And the poor jailer's thinking, oh no, I'm going to have to kill myself because all the, the prisoners have gone and that's on me. And then Paul and Silas say, hey, we're here. We haven't left. We're still here. And the jailer can't believe it. Why didn't you run? He becomes a Christian. His family becomes a Christian. They all get baptized. And the church begins in Philippi. Um, there as a result. Want to re- if you want to write a bit more, read Acts chapter 16. It's an incredible story. So Paul then stayed with a period of time in Philippi with the church. So they were known to him, get it established. They had close relationships, as would Timothy as well, in what they were doing. And the church then seems to be going through a period of suffering at some point. Paul himself is also going through a period of suffering because he's in prison elsewhere. So he's in prison. The church hear about it in Philippi. They send a man named Epaphroditus to Paul with some gifts for his needs because prisons back then were nothing like they are now. They need to provide for the prisoners. So the church heard about what was with Paul. He's in prison. They send someone, and Paul, in response, sends this letter back because he's heard from Epaphroditus what's going on. So he's responding to that. So he's miles away in prison. Epaphroditus has come. He's going to send him back. He's with Timothy. He's going to send him back to the letter. So that's kind of a little bit of the background of what's going to happen. So let's read the first few verses. So can we pop that up? It says here. Got this in your Bible? You can follow along. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're just going to stop there. First couple of verses of the letter. So I'm going to look at the what, the who, 
the how and the where of our key to joy right up front at the beginning of this letter. The first one, the what. Paul and Timothy write the letter, and what is customary is they say who they are, and then they, dis- they kind of announce themselves. And what they do at the beginning of the letter is they announce what they are. And what's the word they use? It says, Paul and Timothy, servants. Servants of Christ Jesus. That's the title they use. That's, of all the titles they could have used, that's the one they chose by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's the one God wanted recording for us. Now, that word servant for us um, may have different connotations. We might think Downton Abbey, you know, servants there, that sort of thing. But actually, the commentators tell us it loses a little bit of force in translation. Servant is an okay translation, but it loses a bit of force. They say a better one for our modern hearing to get the force of what they're meaning is slave. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. And at the time, slaves were common in the Greco-Roman society. They would have been kind of around all the time. It, uh, the, the Bible's not endorsing slavery as such. It's just recognizing what was going on and using it as a picture. But that's what happened. And Paul and Timothy are saying, we are slaves of Jesus. We are slaves of Jesus. And what would a slave be? Well, a slave was subservient to the master of the house. Slaves were under the authority of a higher power. They weren't in charge. There was someone over them calling the shots. It carried a connotation of humility and servitude. That was the role of a slave in the society. And Paul and Timothy are saying, we're not, you're you're in a city where you're all Roman citizens, you've got all the rights, you've got it. Paul himself was a Roman citizen. And he's saying, no, actually, I want to be known first and foremost as a slave, which when you think about it would be abhorrent to a Roman citizen. I'm not a slave. I have slaves. I can have them. I'm kind of at the, the top of the pecking order in this society, being a citizen of Rome. And Paul and Timothy write to the church, those people then say, we are slaves first and foremost. We are servants first and foremost. We are no longer part of a worldly culture that you think of here as Roman citizens. We are part of a kingdom culture and we serve someone different. We are now slaves of Jesus Christ. We are no longer what we was. We are now something new, something different. We are bound to a different master. Caesar is no longer our highest authority. Caesar is no, no longer the one we look to. We have a new master that we look to, Jesus Christ himself. And right at the outset of the letter, the first kind of phrase he used, Paul wants the people to know that actually we are servants of Jesus. That is why we're doing what we're doing. And it kind of begs the question, particularly as kind of Paul was a Roman citizen, why, why would you want to be a slave? Begs the question for us too, why would anyone want to be a slave? Aren't we already free? I know for us, we live in a free country. You heard people say that, free country. Do I want, you know, English democracy, wonderful. Same for Paul. He's like, yeah, I'm a Roman citizen. Why would I want to be a slave? But the Bible says something interesting about this whole idea of slavery. It says, actually, we are all slaves to sin. Romans 6.20 also says it in Titus 3.3. We are slaves to sin. So the bottom line is, actually, you're all slaves, Everybody is a slave. It doesn't matter what your citizenship, where you live, 
where you've come from, your background, you are all slaves. And some people might object to that and say, well, I'm not a slave to sin. And one of you say, well, try and be perfect for 24 hours. You can't. You're, why? Because you're a slave. You're a slave to sin. And that's just what the Bible says. We can be slaves to food and alcohol and sex and possessions and authority and control. It just There are many, many things we can find ourselves enslaved to. And all of us have these sin, selfish, sinful desires that we go after. And as a result, we're under God's right judgment. We deserve to be punished for our breaking of his laws and of our dishonoring of his name. And Paul is saying right at the outset of the letter, actually... Your key to joy, your key to freedom, is being a slave. Because of Jesus' perfect life, death, resurrection, we can be free. We can be free from the power and the consequences of sin. And we do that by becoming a slave. Jesus said, I've come to set you free, free indeed, didn't he? And if you are a Christian, you've been set free from that. The power of sin is broken in your life. The consequences of sin have been dealt with by Christ on the cross. And you are now free um, to follow Jesus. And you're free to be a slave of him. You've been set free from living for yourself to living for others. And it turns out slavery is the key to joy. Who would have thought? But in God's upside-down kingdom, that kind of makes sense. Being a slave of Jesus is the most freeing and releasing thing that could ever happen to you. It means being gained acceptance by God the Father and being one of his children as part of his family. That's what we've been brought into. We have died to our old way of life and we live now for a new way. Because we are... Because we are slaves to Jesus, we are now free to serve others and not live for self. Because we are slaves to Jesus, we can freely give of what we have, knowing ultimately it all comes from God anyway. Because we are slaves of Jesus, we have been blessed and we are then free to bless others. Because we are slaves of Jesus, we have been forgiven, therefore we are free to forgive others. Because we are slaves of Jesus, we are loved unconditionally and we are free in turn to love others unconditionally. Because we are slaves of Jesus, he has sacrificed everything for us. So we in turn are now free to sacrifice everything for him. What a privilege and a gift that is. And if you're a Christian here, this is what you are. You are a slave to Jesus. He has broken the things in your life that enslave you to the world where the desire to get more, be more, do more, go more for your own consumptions is gone. And we now have a desire and a passion to serve him and follow him and be his slave and love others and serve others and bless others and freely give everything we have to others and serve him. And if you're not a Christian here today, I want to encourage you to become a slave of Jesus. (laughs) I want to say to you, stop living for yourself. Stop living for this world and this life, which ultimately will not satisfy. If we're honest with ourselves, we know that. We still strive after the things 
in this world and they never satisfy. The only one who can truly satisfy is Jesus, is Jesus himself. And if you are in that situation, I'd love to talk with you at the end. I'd love to pray with you at the end and kind of talk about what that means. We heard from Ellie here this morning. She stood there and she testified to what God had done in her life um, at the New Day camp over the summer. Slave to Jesus now. And it's the most wonderful, freeing thing. Next thing. We've looked at the what. Let's look at the who. What does it say? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Who we are. We've got the what. It's what we do. We're servants. But who we are, fundamentally. He calls them saints. If you read your New Testament, you'll find this one of the most common words used to describe Christians. I don't think Christian actually is used maybe only once in the whole sort of New Testament. We use it a lot. It's our kind of our normal word. But Paul, when he writes them, often uses the word saints. Saints means set apart, holy people. And that's what Paul's, Paul is writing to. He's writing to the Christians in the church in Philippi. And this, this, this word saint has kind of lost its way over the centuries. Now, when we think of saints, we think of certain individuals, certain men and women who've lived some kind of exemplary life done something. I know the Catholic Church has certain criteria. If someone wants to become a saint, they have to do, perform certain miracles. I think they've got to be dead as well, which is unfortunate. If you want to become a saint, you know, it's done posthumously. But that, that's kind of what we think about. They're, they're the ones. And churches tend to be named after these kind of people, and we kind of can revere them. Even modern saints kind of look at these people's lives who've done all these incredible things. You're like, wow, they're amazing. They've done, but actually this isn't the way it's used in the Bible. That's not the biblical way to use it. It's simply used for those who love and follow Jesus. All of them. They're all saints. doesn't matter whether you've been a Christian for 50, 60 years, or you've been like Ellie, a Christian for four weeks, <laughs> tops, saint. Saint Ellie of Sutton. We giggle, but that's true. That's what she is. That's what the Bible says. You're a saint. So if you are a follower of Jesus here, you are a saint. Something God has done in you when he's fundamentally changed you. When you're a sinner, you're in opposition to God, you're an enemy of God, the Holy Spirit came, you were born again, brought to life, you were justified, you were adopted, and you became a saint. You are holy and righteous. That's what the Bible says. That's who you are. And Paul is talking to these people and he's saying, that's what you do. You're a slave to Jesus and you're going to do it. But actually your fundamental nature, your character is you are a saint. You are holy and righteous. And nothing changes that. Nothing you can do can make that more saintly. You can't be more sainted than the person next to you. Even though you look at them sometimes and think, I think I am. But you can't. But at the same time, you can't be less. You can't be less sainted than the person next to you to you because of things you're wrong and sometimes in our moments we feel that don't we? we think oh man I've had a tough week I've done this I've done that said that to them I was mean to the kids I shattered the wife I was yeah, at work with a colleague or boss or something but you can't alter that that's who you are God has done something because that's why it's described if you look at it it says you are saints in Christ Jesus the first one didn't use the word in what did it use the word thanks for reading guys of you were slaves of Jesus that's what you did you are now saints in Christ Jesus. You are in there. You are in Christ. There's another phrase that comes up again and again. You read the letters to describe Christians. You are in Christ, which means you are holy and righteous as Jesus is. You possess his righteousness. You possess his holiness, which is just an incredible place to be. 
You don't have to do anything. You don't have to strive. You don't have to earn. I don't have to get better, more holy, more accepted by God. If you do this, he'll love me. No, he already loves you as much as he ever will, infinitely, eternally, totally, completely. You are a saint in Christ Jesus. And we need to be daily reminded of this truth because the world will come at you and tell you you're not. I'll tell you you're useless or rubbish or I'll tell you you need to do this and this and this to get better, to be accepted, to earn more. You've got to live in the right place and your kids have got to go to the right school and you've got to earn the right stuff and get the right grades, etc., etc., to, to kind of measure up. No, God says you are a saint. How do we do this? Best place to find this kind of information out is in your, thank you, Bible. Read it. We're encouraging this. Read your Bible daily. Get Philippians out if you're completely lost. Read Philippians chapter a day. Just keep reading it. Underline all the times it talks about joy and rejoice. Find them all in there. Talk about how it talks about you as a believer. Find all the encouragements, the exhortations that Paul gives. Things you can work on, things you can challenge. And start doing them. Be reminded of who you are in Jesus Christ. Read your Bible daily and work out who you are in him. Third thing. And then we'll land the plane. Where? Sir, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. What we've got here, Philippi is the city that they lived in, that kind of area, the town. This was the place where they were. And it talks about the overseers and deacons. That's just a reference to the church leadership. Overseers can also be translated elders. They're the, the, the kind of the governing of the church. Deacons is a servant. Not a lot of information in the New Testament about exactly what they are, but these are the people who function in the church. And so Paul is talking particularly to a local church in a particular time, in a particular town, in a particular place. And he's encompassing all of it. saying all the saints who are there, and he mentions the leadership to just give up this whole sense of he's talking about the complete local church in that place. And what he's saying is actually, if you're a saint and you're a slave... Where do you work that out? In the local church. You don't get to go off and do your own thing elsewhere. You need to be part of a local body where you are connected, where you are joined, where you work out your density, where you work out and live out with other saints. Sometimes find they're not as saintly as you'd like, but you deal with that because you're a slave. And so you love them and you serve them and you honor them, hopefully, while they're doing it back to you. Because they look at you and think, you don't look too saintly either honestly, but I'm going to love you, I'm going to serve you, I'm going to honor you. The where of where you work it out, the where you get your joy is being part of a local church. Knowing you're a saint and knowing you're a slave and being connected to that body. And most of you that's here now in this church, but for some of you might be visitors and going to other churches, that's fine. But get connected in your local body. Work out who you are. The key to joy will be knowing who you are, knowing what you've got to do, and knowing where you've got to do it. And that's part of the local church. The idea of a Christian being outside the local church is not in the New Testament. It doesn't exist as a concept. It's only our kind of through history and humans being humans, and our kind of our modern individually consumer culture, say, oh, we'll, just, we'll pick and choose. Rubbish. Get in a local church. Get known. Be part of it. Come under the leadership. Love the people there. Serve them. And in turn, they will do the same for you. That's what we're to be. And so I encourage you, are you part of a local church? If you're not, get in one. I know a really good one. Right here, really. 
But if you're not from this area, that's go to where you are, find it, make it your mission, make it your priority to get part of a local church. If you're a part of this local church, join a life group. Don't put it off. It's vital that you get into the community and you get to know people. We use life groups as our kind of way, way we do that. It's our little vehicle. Come and pray with us. We're praying this Tuesday night. We gather together as saints and slaves to pray to Jesus for all the things we're doing. Come and join us. Last one, how to land the plane. What the next line says? It says, how do you live like this? How do I live as a slave to Jesus? How do I live as a saint, even though I know I am, sometimes I don't feel I am? How do I live as part of the local church? Look around. That's hard work, isn't it? Look around at the people you've got to live with and be a part of. How do I do that? Well, Paul gives a very clear instruction. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we live this out? How do we work this out? Well, the first thing he says is grace. You need grace. What is grace? Grace is the unmerited favor of God. You need that. You cannot do it in your own strength. It's not about your effort and your skill and your smarts and your experience and what book you read. It's all about God's grace on our life. You cannot earn it and you sure as heck don't deserve it. But God freely gives it to his people. He freely pours it out. And our responsibility is to ask. The reason we're saints, the reason we've been transformed into the likeness of Christ is all because of God's grace. God saved you by his grace. Even the faith you used to get saved is by grace, it says. It all comes down, and we need that, and we need to keep coming back to him. That's why we push prayer. That's why we push reading your Bible. Means of grace so we can understand all that God has for us. And the second thing is peace. Why do we need peace? What's that about? Well, the first and foremost, the greatest area where we need peace was between us and God. Because there was enmity between us because we were rebellious unrighteous, selfish fools who hated God and everything he stood for. But that has been torn down and broken through Jesus' death and resurrection and we can have the ultimate peace, which is peace with God himself. But also we need to pray for peace in life. It's going to come up as we go through the book of Philippians. There'll be areas, how do we have it in these areas? We need peace in life. We need peace as we face difficulties and uncertainties and pain and death and injustice that come into our life. We need that. We need that to live lives with one another and get along with them in life group and church life and just exist together as a wider community and family. We need grace and we need peace for all those things. And so as we end, I'm going to ask you, where do you need grace and peace in your life? Where do you right now need grace and peace? Because I want to just pray for you that you would have it. And maybe we'll pray for each other as well that we'd have that. Do you want to stand and can the band come up? Do you want a little bit of time to worship? I just want to lead us in a moment of prayer. And then we'll sing something. Do you want to just close your eyes? The world says that we can find joy and happiness in a whole bunch of things. Purposes, possessions, places, people, all these things. And when they don't work, we just move on to another one. 
The Bible says there's only one place to find joy, and that's in Jesus and him alone. And this letter is going to expound that in so many areas. And so the key for joy for us this morning is Jesus himself. Jesus himself. And we're going to come to him now as a family. And we're going to worship him and we're going to make requests of him and we're just going to love on him. And I just want to just pray for us, pray for you, that we would get these truths and bury them in our hearts. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that you've called us to be your slaves. Lord, I want to thank you that you have freed us from the slavery to self, the slavery to sin, the slavery to consuming everything on earth. Thank you that we are free from that. That has been broken. The consequences have been taken by you. That we are free to love and give and serve and sacrifice and forgive because you have shown them all to us in so many ways, in so many beautiful ways. The ultimate one being the cross, where you demonstrated your greatest love for all of us. Lord, I want to thank you for that. Lord, I thank you that you've made us saints, that we are holy people, and that we can't be more or less holy by our actions. We are just holy because we are in you. We are in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful thing that is what a wonderful source of joy is and it's never going to be taken from us because that's where we are once you're in Christ you don't get to get out of him he's got you thank you for that holiness and righteousness we now enjoy thank you God that you've placed us as part of a local church Lord if we're not part of it God I guess you give us grace to get in one but Lord I thank you for this expression you've given us here the other ones represented here from visitors and friends Lord, I thank you for the gift, the local church, the joy that is of working out our salvation there amongst other brothers and sisters. And Lord, I recognize life is difficult. Life can be tough going through painful seasons, even the one we prayed about this morning. Lord, I recognize that, Lord. And I pray, God, you would give us your grace and peace now. If you know you need grace and peace in your life, maybe you just want to open up your hands. Maybe you want to just start talking to Jesus about it, whatever it is. Just start, bring him the situation and then ask for it. If there's anything particularly specific, I need love, I need forgiveness, I need patience, I need something. Ask for that. Get really specific with God. I think he loves us when we're kind of really on the money with our prayers and specific in it. Holy Spirit of God, I ask you to come now and you fill us, your people, and you pour out your grace and peace on us. We stand here as your people and say, we don't deserve it. That's why it's grace. We haven't earned it because we had a good week. and we're not, It's not like we're not going to receive it because we've had a bad week. You just pour out your grace on us. Pray you do that now, Lord God. I pray you'd pour out your peace as well on us, Lord Jesus. Where there's trouble, where we're facing difficulties and pain, I pray you give us peace, Lord Jesus.